Good evening. Do you believe in ghosts? It's alive. It's Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. At the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon, we're talking gooey and gory zombies. Join the sleaze. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for over two years. There's something like 60 yeah. plus bonus episodes waiting for you guys if you haven't made the jump yet. And we also do our bonus transmission series there where we're always talking about new release genre films, which there there have been some coming out this year. Not as many yeah. as previous years, but they've been existing. And and soon we're going to be talking about a little Cronenberg Jr.'s film, Possessor. Hell yeah, I'm so, so excited. You can look forward to that. Jamie and I saw an early screener of it a few months ago, and we both are very excited to talk about it. Yeah, it's very, very uh, but that be. But that being said, we had a bunch of people make the jump this week, uh, so we're going to rip through that. Uh, we had uh, Spencer, uh, Tumis, uh, Maddie Shoebaker, uh, Tom Eisenberg, Bennett Glass, uh, Brandon Raposo, Jess Harville, um, we're still going here, Trash <laughs> Ben. Uh, nice. Kel Razor. I'm curious if that's <laughs> supposed to be a play on Hellraiser. And we also have Jay Kurtz. Uh, so thanks to all of you folks for signing up. Hope you guys are enjoying those bonus episodes. Thank you so much, guys. Um, yeah, welcome. Um, but that's the one plug for the week. The other plug of the week, as always, is uh, Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts, and I know you are, I see the stats. Come on. Scroll right. down to the very bottom right now while you're listening to this and give us a good old rating and review down below. Helps us climb the ranks over there and find new listeners that way. And we have been hearing, we have been getting some reviews of people saying they've been finding us that way. So that helps us out awesome. a lot, too, and we appreciate that. But those are the plugs for the week. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome. As always, I'm your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me is my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. We are back talking more sleazy movies as usual. Uh, two weeks ago, I think, would have been the last time you guys would have heard from us free listeners. And uh, we would have had longtime friend of the show and returning guest Steve Carlson on one yeah. of the foremost trash fiends on Letterboxd. If you aren't following him, I would recommend. The man has seen so many <laughs> things that movie. can only be found on a lost VHS tape in a random store in L.A. <laughs> or something. He's seen it. Uh, and he brought with him the sort of uh, early outlaw splatter comedy origins of one filmmaker you might have heard of out of New Zealand, Peter Jackson. Yeah, just wild to see him do all that gore. Just brains flying everywhere, sliding on walls. It's, it's fantastic. Exactly. So we talked about uh, Bad Taste from 1987 as well as Braindead 
or uh, Dead Alive for any uh, heathen Americans out there from <laughs> 1992. Um, and we had a lot of fun talking about the very elaborate splatter and gore that Peter Jackson and the sense, the sort of like manic sense of humor that he has about yeah. it too. Uh, I kick ass for the Lord is not a line, <laughs> Jamie, and I will be forgetting anytime soon. I love that line. Um, One of my favorites. <laughs> Uh, but for listeners last week, for the Patreon listeners, bonus listeners, exclusively for you guys, we did the first ever um, voted on episode. We introduced some democracy around these parts for the patrons <laughs> where you guys can now vote on a double feature every two months. And we did the first one and the first episode of Spooktober around these parts. We did David Cronenberg's The Brood yeah. as well as Andre Zawofsky's Possession. We talked about... <laughs> uh, horror filmmakers uh dealing with their very incredibly messy divorce <laughs> yeah if those films uh, indicate anything us. they were very very messy yes and child custody battles galore we had a good time talking about uh both of those and it was the first episode of spooktober and it yes. was a good one you guys voted well good on you guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely uh, but moving movies. on to this week, we have a very special guest joining us and uh, an episode that we have had planned for a very long time, an episode that we kind of conceived months and months and months ago, and we laid all the breadcrumbs for it. So we have actually talked about every movie in both of these franchises leading up to bo- to the two movies we're going to be talking Sneaking about. up on you. Exactly. We did uh, The Exorcist very early on. We did uh, the insane psychodrama Exorcist 2 by John Borman <laughs> a, couple, a couple weeks or months ago. And we also did Psycho not that long ago. But yep. to talk about the two films and to introduce the exact two films we're going to be talking about, we have the pod daddy of Chapo Trap House himself <laughs> and newly fresh-faced baby on Letterboxd.com reviewing everything he's been watching in oh. quarantine. We have Will Meneker. Will, how you doing? A joy to be back, guys. Uh, happy to be here, and uh, thanks for the shout out on Letterbox. Uh, Josh is sort of my—he's my—he's my Letterbox sort of Sherpa or uh, rabbi, <laughs> if you will. I mean, you know, I, I thought I, I thought I loved movies until I started following Josh on Letterbox. He is—he's the unrivaled king of uh, just loving movies. Um, so. <laughs> we're, we're here. It is now officially October. It is October. It's Spooktober. Uh, we're here oh, for yeah. some, some frights, some chills, some, some ghouls, some werewolves, some mummies. Um, I've just gotten back from licking every surface on Air Force One. Um, but <laughs> it is good to That's be back spooky as hell, here. dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So the, the, two, the two movies we got on deck for you today are Psycho 2, directed by Richard Franklin and starring uh, Anthony Perkins, uh, Meg Tilly, and uh, Dennis Franz, who was um, uh, on loan from the Brian De Palma universe for his role in this film. Uh, then we got the amazing, one of the best horror sequels of all time, probably one of my favorite horror movies ever made, The Exorcist Three, written and directed by William Peter Blatty, starring George C. Oh, Scott, yeah. Brad Dorif, and uh, Jason Miller. Um, not, not my Jason Miller, not the one I know and love, but uh, the, the Father Callis from the original movie. Uh, Psycho 2 is a film about a sweet, kind-hearted man coping with mental illness who is gaslit by two very nasty women. And Exorcist <laughs> 3 is a film that proves that... Exorcist 3 is the film that proves that uh, psycho-Catholics have no business being on the Supreme Court or holding any elected office, but they do... <laughs> And should continue to make insane horror films because, like, it is a worldview that lends itself perfectly to the horror genre. 
Yeah, absolutely. Hell yeah. Well, that's as good as any introduction as we're going to get. I think we're going to jump into it right here. We are going to start off uh, chronologically here. We are going to jump into Psycho 2. She would never do anything to hurt me. No. She'll kill you. I know she will. No, I, I won't do that. You can't make me. Kill her. 22 years later, Norman Bates is home. Psycho 2. It's starting again. All right, we are talking Psycho 2, the 1983 American uh, slasher film, according here, according to here, even though I would really say it's closer to what Will described as it's almost like a, a strange, traumatic gaslight thriller. Yeah. Um, a lot more psychological though, stuff going on here. <laughs> directed, though, by Richard Franklin, who we've talked about once previously on the show. We did his excellent uh, sort of like road thriller, road games yeah, um, awesome. out of Australia with with, with Stacey Keach. And, and we talked about on that how that his his very sort of um, careful camera placement and camera moves and that they he had a very hitchcockian sense of suspense throughout that film and when we researched that film we realized holy shit this dude was literally an understudy to hitchcock and actually visited on him on a whole bunch of different sets and um taught him in all kinds of different classes so when they were picking someone to you know do the sort of 23 years later uh sequel to psycho which just seems like a bad idea when you say really does. psycho sequel you're like that's not a good idea i wouldn't do that <laughs> i wouldn't want to be i wouldn't want to be in charge who'd want to follow up psycho we just talked yeah. about it on the show and we had a hard time talking about it because we were like there's no conversation that we were going to have talking about that film that hasn't been discussed in every film history or film studies right. class that you've ever seen but psycho 2 to uh my surprise when i watched it for the first time just a couple months ago in quarantine uh it's fantastic uh, and it's really sad <laughs> yeah yeah very um, sad i mean and I, I was quite surprised by that yeah i mean to to just flip it on its head and and say uh you know we're, we're actually going to really sympathize with with norman this time around uh is such a it's such a bold move and it on it, it, now that i've seen the movie it really feels like the right move uh because it, it you know how the how the movie's set up is like within the first half an hour you're kind of on everybody's you know you're on everybody's side here where they're just like maybe we shouldn't be releasing the guy that we just saw you know dresses his mother and kill multiple people and yeah i'm and, still haunted by that cleanup scene of how he hold takes right. that body and just moves janet lee's body like around the motel and dumps her in the swamp and how sort of like slow and sort of like procedural it almost is right and how like, thick th th those and images still haunt was. you while you're watching this film <laughs> right yeah exactly and and he th th it's genius because what I mean, the, the director the movie, does the movie is do opens this on purpose with Go ahead. Yeah, the movie opens with just like it, it just it just re, it just shows you again the famous shower scene from the original Psycho, yeah. and then it's just like oh Psycho two, it's twenty three years later, and it is funny that like the sequel is made so much longer after the original movie, but it kind of works for the the plot 
because yeah. it's like you know it, it opens and it's 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 Norman Bates and he's um, being uh, let out of the institution that he's uh, resided in for the last uh, couple decades, and I, I like it because it's like it, it's it's you know it's an '80s movie, uh, it's, it's it's the Reagan era, and but it, it, it like you said it does subvert your expectations because going into it like the first scene is like a hearing and the judge is like uh, we you know we found that he's paid his debt to society and is uh, no longer insane like you're free to go and then. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, um, Janet, Janet Lee's sister, uh, played by, uh, sorry, remind me of the actress's name, Vera Miles. Yeah, yes. I believe so. She plays, uh, you know, she, 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 yeah, she, she, she plays repri- Lee she reprises her role from the written. <laughs> yes. And then, and, oh, yeah, and we find out that she ended up marrying the guy who her sister, Janet Lee, was with and intended to marry in the original one. That's, she stole the $40,000 to, you know, hopefully start a new life with this guy, ended up getting murdered at the Bates Motel, and then her sister just, you know, slides right in there and uh, ends up marrying this dude in Fairville, <laughs> California. Um, but no, I like I like the beginning because it's like you think it's like uh, a classic '80s movie where the uh, the the liberal justice system and these like these lenient judges, uh, along with doctors, <laughs> conspire to unleash homicidal maniacs back onto society. Right. But um, no, the movie actually it goes in a, in a, in a quite a different direction. Uh, you, you think this would be? It starts out thinking it's going to be a sort of a victims' rights movie about how you know we uh, we got to keep the sickos locked up before they kill again. But it becomes. Uh, sort of, sort of a poignant examination of uh, a guy suffering from mental illness and trying to put his life back together when everyone else around him basically wants him dead and not vice versa. Yeah, and that's and that's really important too because there, you know, like obviously this film opens on the opening shower sequence to which it doesn't even have to do, but it really wants to put the horrific images back into your brain it right. wants to you to have a refresher on that and then Reminds you sort you of get this, this, this very moody image of like the gothic house lit in like the hellish orange silhouette and there's this sort of like updated melancholy like piano score that's playing in it with a little bit of those 80s like light synths going to oh, it yeah. too as, as as it brings color to what were previously black and white images and then we open in the court and there's these big sweeping you know dollies and cranes and there's a, a shot just of the back of his head because we are you know be, we are rightfully very scared of you know uh, Norman Bates in this moment and mm-hmm. you understand on some level the people who are still traumatized by his actions because you as a viewer in a way are being reminded of that and that you are being reminded of his sort of like Oedipal psychosexual serial killer uh, aspects of him and then when we actually get a look at him and the way that they use Anthony Perkins uh, who, by the way, almost didn't make the movie because he was like, the idea of a Psycho 2 is so stupid. And then <laughs> he read he read the screenplay and saw how much it cared about Norman Bates as yeah. a character. And it very much, and, and that was what got him on, on board. And almost instantly, when you just look at the lines on his face and you just see him looking like this normal, middle-aged man who's kind of sad and, and everyone is, you know, obviously very upset at the idea that he's he's being let out and they're screaming at him and yelling at him about how he's a freak and a yeah. and obviously a, and a psycho and a and, and a he killer plays and him so like nervous that. and timid so you really do get this like like even on a physical level even though he's a very tall man he he feels just very weak and mm-hmm. uh, and so that you do really get a lot of sympathy for him um, and what's really smart about the film too is within that first half an hour 
you are set in, like I said, with with the townspeople, basically, like this guy's a murderer or whatever. And then as the film unfolds, you start to feel the guilt of thinking that way throughout the entire thing. Even though we have good reason, we did see the the first Psycho and all that. But I like that they <laughs> they set you into that as well, where it's like you are. You know, you you think of this guy only as a killer. He can't, you know, progress. He can't uh, uh, get better or anything like that. And so, I just like that they set you in that kind of uh, what what the what the rest of the people are are feeling. And then as the film goes, they make you almost feel bad about thinking that way. And well, yeah, because because the most of the movie is just sort of like a really grim view of the rehabilitation process right it's literally like he gets a uh, uh, you know like a shitty gig at a local diner and they they tell him you know that he, uh, he gets the job Den- he gets the job dennis haysbert got in heat exactly it's the <laughs> exact <laughs> same idea which, which, yeah <laughs> which is funny because because the use in heat is and, again as uh, used as a very sort of like tragic uh sort of sub story to the idea of if these criminals you know who robbed the streets were to get rehabilitated there's not much sort of options on their on their class level right um and and, and they mention here too that you uh, know there's not even sort of like a social worker to work with anthony perkins because they've they've had cutbacks so there's no one there to actually spend you know 24 hours with him and make sure that his you know he sort of like returns back to normal yeah they just have like a doctor every once in a the, while the only check guy on him. the only yeah the only guy he's got is his doctor from the mental institution played by robert loja who right. seems like he checks in on him maybe once every two weeks and i, I really liked <laughs> in the beginning of this movie but but before before we get to the sort of the twist that is revealed halfway through the movie and you know you're you're coming into it like you said with certain expectations about who Norman Bates is right. i love the idea that like okay he's like okay uh, it is my professional medical opinion that you know Norman Bates no longer thinks he's his mother, is no longer insane. He committed these crimes because he was insane, and now that he's no longer insane, he deserves to re-enter society. And then by re-entering society, like first day out of the mental institution he spent the last 23 years in, they're like, oh, let's just go right back to the Bates Motel and that creepy house you lived in that caused you to go insane <laughs> and murder seven people. Yeah, just move, move back in here. I'll, here, I bought you some cereal. Just, you know, just right back at it. And then also like, oh yeah, oh, uh, a, a 20 year old woman is now room is now your roommate sure Norman that's cool you think everything's gonna be okay <laughs> yeah I yeah, think he I, says I, something I, like you know how to resist them now don't you and I'm like well you know how to do that <laughs> on like you know you, you know you're you're in the doctor's office you're giving him some tests or whatever I don't think it's the same when you actually go inside the home in which all of this happens so I, I did find that pretty funny you're right yeah, yeah I well, mean, and, is, and is it, this is this is this like expo- is this exposure therapy or something <laughs> <they're> like, yeah. <laughs> uh, Norman actually is part of your rehabilitation uh, we're gonna we're gonna keep you in the creepy bedroom where you murdered your mother and her lover <laughs> Uh, and then, like, had a permanent psychic break with yourself that led you to, uh, to become a serial killer. Yeah, like, and he leaves hey, but you so know, whatever. The, the house is still an escrow, so yeah, yeah. He's like, all right, bye. Think yeah, be okay. Peace out. No time and then, at and, all. And then he also discovers he also he also. He also discovers that Dennis, Dennis Franz has been uh, put in charge of the Bates Motel by the hospital board, and he's been running it as essentially like you know a party motel where people come yeah. to you know fuck and do drugs or whatever. He finds some like poppers in the room, and he's like, oh, you know, well, what are these? And I, I love Dennis Franz in this because he is like, you know, he, the, the, he's an actor who excels at playing like disgusting scumbags, and he maybe <laughs> this is probably his 
greatest scumbag role. Like this in Blowout. Like I said, he's on loan from the Brian De Palma universe, but he is like exactly that character. He is just like a disgusting creep and slob. Yeah, and, yeah. Know, we we just talked about him recently. We really that, like, loved him that, in uh, Dress to Kill as the as as like the sleazy yeah. cop. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I mean, and it sort of it sort of begins to suggest to you that like uh, the the residents of this town are in fact um, sicker than Norman Bates ever was. Yeah, I mean, they have that scene where uh, it's uh, I think uh, is it Mary? Is that her name? That uh, that he Meg Tilly. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Meg and, Tilly. Yeah, and and she stays with him that one night, and then the day after, uh, that Warren guy he comes to the to the diner, and it was just like, I want what Norman got last night, and shit like that. So there's some really seedy, disgusting dialogue that comes from that guy, uh, and yeah, he he played he played a dirtbag very well. Yeah, there's a, there there is something. He's like he's just like a walking like, mustard stain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the, and, well, and there and there's something interesting about that too, because like obviously Richard Franklin is updating, you know, things that we remember in kind of like almost like a classical thriller sense. Yeah, and he's updating them for with like in an '80s slasher context when things were kind of grosser and more sexual and more violent, and that and that actually does also apply to obviously in some of the characterizations we're talking about here, and in the violence itself, there there is some really brutal on-screen violence, like when it eventually unleashes here but speaking back to uh how hilarious it is that they have norman do exposure therapy basically at the Bates motel there is something that's obviously intrinsically silly about that on a plot level but on like sort of like a, a cinematic level or a metatextual level for on like richard Franklin's part it's absolutely genius because yeah. again he 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 has us considering all of these images that we are already in our bones terrified of, obviously right. because of the first Psycho film, and every single one of those images, we have you know a memory of it going horribly, horribly wrong. And obviously, in Norman's head, that's exactly what's being triggered. Is he's he's having those memories brought back into him as well, the same way that we are. But those images are screaming at him, Norman, pick up the knife, Norman poison your mother norman like it, yeah. like the, the images themselves are screaming at him because that is what is expected of him not just by the townspeople but it's it's expected of him of a sequel to psycho you go to psycho yeah. you said well norman bates kills people that's why we go to a psycho movie that's right. why we got like the, the, that would be the only reason to turn this into a franchise would would be that norman bates he's the killer he's the crazy guy he's gonna kill people and what's so sad is that watching Norman not just sort of resist the townspeople who have this almost deep-seated urge to see Norman go back to who he was, even though they claim to be terrified of it, they seem to be egging him on. They're like, come on, psycho, bring yeah, it. And that's absolutely. exactly what he does absolutely. in that diner like, they were scene. Like, they were like, uh, yeah, like, I was like, yeah, the Bates Motel murders are like the last time anyone uh, out cared about Fairvale, California. You know, yeah. so they were like, "Oh, we can't wait for our town to get put back on the map again when Norman comes home." But uh, I, I, li I like your thought about how, like, you know, because this was so long after the original movie, and this is now in the '80s. This is now in the sleazy '80s here on the Sleazily mm -hmm. podcast. And the way it kind of like, like with Dennis Franz and the fact that the Bates Motel has been turned into like, you know, uh, an hourly rate sort of uh, hot sheets motel. Um, it's sort of like, it, it, yeah, it's in the sleazy '80s now, and uh, be, you know, because I'm a podcast professional. I actually did rewatch the original Psycho as well because I wanted to oh, sort damn. of contrast Went that with Psycho too. And it, and it is funny. 
like the, the original Psycho and, and the shower scene and all of the kind of uh, the Freudian psychosexual, uh, you know, the knife and the penis and all that shit and mother and whatnot. I think like Psycho is really the first time in American movies where uh, horniness and psychology were combined on screen to uh, like, you know, n- nobody, nobody was prepared for that. <laughs> You know, yeah. and uh, it's, it, it changed everything. You know, Janet Lee in that shower, it got everyone uh, so, so sprung, but also so afraid of their, their own psychology that like everyone, it was the first movie to suggest that like, do I have psychology? And could that psychology, like I have a mother, could that lead me to kill people <laughs> every time I get horny? Maybe, maybe. But in the 80s, it's like the, the, the um, uh, overall culture and world is already, is, has now been soaked in two decades of sleaze and yeah. exploitation and tits. And it's just like, you know, like this is the world that Norman finds himself in. And he still is like the Norman of the original Psycho, who's almost a very boyish, kind of naive, yes. um, wouldn't hurt a fly, kind of like, like, like tender, tender soul who's like not prepared he, for the he's, he's incredibly the offended when he, he finds, finds out that in. Dennis has been selling it to uh, children that had, you know, do drugs and have sex in his motel. He's like, that is not what a motel is for. A <laughs> yeah. motel is for a beautiful dame to run away with $40,000. Norman Bates has morals <laughs> and principles, guys. <laughs> I like it when um, he, he complains to Dennis Franz about like the type of clientele that he's um, he's serving here at the the Bates Motel, and then Franz is like you know uh, Norman sort of stalks off after firing him up to the uh, his spooky his spooky house, and Franz um, chases him outside and he's like, I uh, like you know. Uh, uh, my, my customers get what they ask for. What do your customers get, Norman? Dead? <laughs> <laughs> I really, uh, yeah. I also really enjoy what what Franklin does here with uh, some of the the camera angles and the shots. He'll take uh, things that were from the first Psycho and then kind of reform them. Like he'll use the same camera angle. For instance, there's one. Well, obviously there's the classic where it's from the, uh, from the hotel office and you can see the, 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 the house in the background and the mothers in the, in the window. That's obviously a classic, mm-hmm. but there's even something, uh, along the lines where he, yeah, he, re- he repeats like the, 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 the God's eye view of the staircase. Right, you know, like yeah. the, the shot from above say, of, like, of, of the, the staircase in the Bates house, yeah. Right, to indicate kind of that he's dealing with his like mother's psychology again, and that's when he locks himself in that attic where we have, I, I believe, the first uh, of one of the first murder scenes, um, which also leads to some interesting images where Richard Franklin basically he he has the stabbing motions from like that classic kind of '60s you know uh, vibe with the killings. But then he he includes the '80s excess where you know uh, Warren, for instance, when he gets when he gets cut, he gets a big slice right in his cheek, and you just see yeah. the open gash, big old prosthetic gash. Yeah, <laughs> like eventually the uh, will we'll lead to where the, the the plot twist is and all that. But uh, like somebody gets a knife right through the mouth out of the back of the head. Like so so they're basically taking yeah. those classic stab stab images, but then also showing you all of the blood and excess gore and all of that mm-hmm. well it's, yeah, it's the same like, thing too there's a repeat can, of the that's shower what you can scene do 20 years nudity. later <laughs> yeah exactly yeah exactly. yeah yeah you like yeah yeah meg tilly gets completely naked in the shower scene and like they're they're, they're telling you like yeah 20 years later america you know, you know is, is a dump saturated in you know pornography and drugs so you know famously the original shower right. scene is just all about like using the editing and the cuts to like not show you like a knife plunging into someone's stomach or you know any nudity or whatever it's it, it creates that image in your head through hitchcock's you know famous technique 
But now it's like they're like, right. oh, it's it's the eighties now. We're gonna do the same thing, but we're gonna show you like you know people's faces getting cut <laughs> open and 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 nudity, which is great. Another thing I really appreciated yeah. about um, Psycho Two and the overall look of it is that I'm pretty sure like, the entire movie was filmed in one of the Universal backlots and like uh, sets. So everything is like a okay. set, but they, there's some really great matte art. There's some really great use of matte art in this movie that has like a, mm-hmm. a pretty nice throwback feel. Like, you know, famously the sky behind the spooky house. And then when like, uh, when Norman leaves his, uh, his job at the diner with Meg Tilly, there's this great like, uh, like, like painted backdrop of kind of like desolate California mixed together with sort of like the, you know, the, the effect of um, clouds moving across the skyline. Uh, it was very yeah. cool. I, I'm a big fan of matte art and matte painting in movies, and I'd like to see I, that. I also liked, uh, it's a, like, I think it's the shot at the end, though, but it's him just kind of in this, like, silhouetted uh, figure, and then you see, like, lightning and wind going on in the background of the sky and thunder going off, and it's very just, very heavily special effect oriented, but it was very cool to see in the in the Psycho universe. Yeah, Frank Franklin does a really good do- a good job visually on the film, especially because he's updating the film to be in like a different. Um, obviously, he's he's using a lot of, of of colors, and he has to change sort of like the time period to include updated elements. But he finds different ways to reuse literal set items from the original. Which, by the way, I think the house was never torn down, so the house is completely the same house. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> it wasn't. I understand. It, it was, wasn't. Yeah, it, was, it was kept exactly the same on, on the Universal Studios lot. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, and then so the only thing they had to, I think, remake is they had to remake the actual motel. And you can tell a little bit because they've, you know, they they include some wider shots than Hitchcock ever got to include of the motel. There's one amazing uh, overhead shot of the kid running away from the basement after that yes, first murder that in the shot. house where you get to just see the entire sort of like like uh, desert dirt ground as she's running her way out. And yeah, and the the house just has like this looming, lanky kind of look to it in a way that it's just an angle we've never quite seen. It's basically that God's eye view, but from the top of the house this time rather than the top of the staircase. Yeah. Yeah, the house does feel kind of like it's got this ghostly, alive feeling to it. Basically, like it is the represent- representation of the mother, which in a way, you know, it, it definitely is. But it, it feels like she is that embodiment of the house, like her looking over it and, and just watching him the entire time. You know, every time he enters into the home, he gets this nervous feeling and all the past just comes flying back to him. Yeah, and, and that, that paranoid um, like perspective is very, very important because we haven't talked about it a whole lot yet, but like the first half of the film, before we hit that twist, most of the actual suspense and dramatics of it is, is Norman going crazy again? Right. Or is someone triggering him or is someone not even not even that or is is there a third party who's back is his is there his mother's spirit sort of back in a new form like maybe not through him anymore and i like that they string you along too it's not like uh, we don't really know i mean there's little things that you can kind of go oh maybe it's her i think it is her that kind of it's it's got that mystery vibe which i really enjoy uh something that Mm -hmm. it feels like you could almost try to figure out as it goes uh uh, that that I just really appreciated because it it led me to constantly question myself. I'm like, well, maybe Norman did do it, <laughs> but but you know, and then Mary will say something completely out of left field, and then you know you start to think it's her, and then we we know the twist. But uh, I did like that they they really took advantage of that. Well, and 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 how much of it is is it too is just like is Norman 
just going crazy again. Like there are images right. where it's just like stuff that couldn't be happening. Is it, is it, are he, is he hallucinating these things? Like there's an image where he looks at the doorknob of the mother's bedroom and in the reflection you get this really intense close-up of little baby Norman. He sees yeah. himself as a, as a child in the doorknob. Yeah, which by the way is actually um, Oz Perkins who actually is um, Anthony Perkins's son who is oh, now, you know, like a horror filmmaker in his own right but that's, that's who the child oh, is in, in the doorknob. And there's all kinds of, again, different sort of, you know, replicating the same sort of images of, of, of the low angle shot of like the shower head and, and images of, of the peephole and all kinds of things that you would think would just be kind of sort of like lame reference callbacks in like another movie. But instead right. are, again, are built deeply built into the text of Norman reliving these images and trying as hard as he can. And Anthony Perkins gives an amazing performance of how hard he wants to resist them as he's like, no, I don't want to go to that place again. And you're, you're wondering this whole time is what should they have released Norman is, is he going crazy? And then uh, as we hit the twist, obviously, which is that um, Meg Tilly's character, who is a coworker with him at the diner, who he kind of feels bad for because she, you know, she seems like a poor downer luck kind of girl who just got in a fight with her boyfriend and got kicked out of their apartment together. And, you know, he, he, he brings her in as almost like a, I don't want to be alone with these images because they're terrifying me. And at one point he even says, I'm just as terrified of this place as as she is because obviously she's looking at him glancing at the knife glancing at all these things at, at one point there's huge tension wrung out of him just cutting a sandwich oh, because yeah. she's she, she's imagining him in and, this horror context and he's imagining himself and both of them are going we don't want that to happen so he invites her into his house as like someone to help him not be alone and not be crazy and not, you know, go back to, right. you know, the, the place and the person she ends up that he was, which is horribly hand. ironic, which we, when we learn what is actually happening. Yeah. Yeah. And like, but, and like in the whole first part of the movie with Meg Tilly's character too, it's like, she also, you know, he invites her to stay with him and she's like, Oh, like I, you're all, I also know you're a murderer and you're like, well, then why the <laughs> fuck would you be spending the night with him in this creepy ass <laughs> yeah. house? Which is of course yeah. explained later, but like also the Meg, the Meg Tilly character like mirrors the Janet Lee character. And then we find out mirrors her in quite a lot of the other interesting ways as well. But like, you know, she's basically kind of like a teenage runaway. Who's this like, you know, a woman in trouble like Janet Lee, who's this like young, very sexually attractive woman who like, like Janet Lee, like Norman, you know, the switch turns inside him between like, you know, sex and murder. And you're thinking, oh, I know where this is leading. Like, this is just like the prototypical like serial killer victim. But, yeah. you know, the twist is that she is actually Janet Lee's niece and she is the daughter of uh, the, the, the Vera Miles, the woman in the beginning who was screaming at him in the courthouse about like, how can you let this homicidal maniac out? And that like the mother and daughter team, they're in cahoots together to drive Norman insane and get him sent back to prison by uh, dressing, leaving him notes around the house as his mother and then dressing up as his mother to further push yep. him over the edge and even like coax him into committing another murder. So like they're, yeah. they're, they're very, very bad people here. You no, know, these, these victims <laughs> rights people don't believe them. Put There's, them in jail. And, and he <laughs> sprinkles these like hints throughout, which are very, very smart. Like he actually has people say that they physically saw somebody else in the house at the window instead of like Norman only going through kind of the, the psychological stuff. You, you start to get people saying, I saw someone physically in there. So you, you have to know at a certain point that there is somebody 
go, like there's something going on. There's a, something physical going on with that house rather than just his like psychological experience. And uh-huh. then they also do things that uh-huh, are though. But there is about, but there there is there yeah aha uh-huh, there is another twist though because you know like the film establishes that there is a third party in this house who's uh, murdering people. Uh, spying through the peepholes of people, um, like moving furniture around and like driving Norman insane, but also like, you know, Norman thinks it could be his mother again, who's, who's back killing people. Uh, some teens who try to like smoke pot and have sex in their basement, one of them gets murdered. <laughs> and then like the incompetent police force is like, oh, duh, I guess we have to look into this now. Um, but at the end, you realize that like not only were uh, Janet Lee's sister and niece conspiring to like drive him insane and dress up as his mother and murder people or not murder people there was a third party in the house norman bates's actual biological mother who was the sister of the famous mother from the original one who like you know uh basically uh her sister adopted norman as her own and she's been living in the town and working at the fucking diner and like uh, th- this to me was a little bit it was like the only it was the twist that like wasn't sufficiently foreshadowed because she's yeah, really not mm-hmm. in I any agree. scene other than like the first one where she's like I think it's God's work to give like you know people a job after they get out of a mental institution for two decades yeah, she, she, and, like, she says uh, I, I think it's very Christian to forgive and forget don't you think that's the I like the only line that she has basically yeah and then, yeah and th- and then, like, her whole thing is that, like, you know, she's, she's protecting Norman by killing everyone who she views as a threat to him. Dennis Franz, and then eventually Meg Tilly and her mother. Or actually, Meg Tilly gets killed by the police, but, you know. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, so. A lot of, uh, yeah, a lot there, of yeah, yeah, well, I mean, a, it, 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 it turns into a really twist. chaotic, like, horror set piece. And a when, second like, mother. Like, yeah, well, because, because Meg Tilly you know, eventually she, she starts feeling really bad for what is doing to Norman because she's seeing the human, she's uh, sort of identifying more with the audience in this case, where she is seeing him as a real person and the amount of strain and effort he is taking to actually sort of rehabilitate himself and, and, and recover and return back to normal society. And she starts, you know, thinking that her mom is the one who is behind everything that's been happening. All these bodies that are start turning up and start turning up in the swamp again, because again, they, we are, uh, you know, uh, recurring images from the original psycho keep coming back both as a way to haunt Norman, but also as sort of kind of like this, this, this weird sort of like impulse that we, we need to see these things again. But there, there's this interesting thing where Meg Tilly is, you know, eventually very, very upset and trying to help Norman. But she is also seeing that real violence is happening, and she's not entirely convinced that her mother is the one doing it because she knows that her mother is bad, but she doesn't think her mother would quite go that far. And so that starts fucking with Meg Tilly, where then she starts getting paranoid on, is is, is their plan working? Are they actually re-triggering Norman, and is Norman actually carrying out some of this violence? There's one that she's convinced he didn't, he didn't because she locked him in the attic for the remainder of the time. But at a certain point, she gets terrified because he starts answering phone calls and talking to his mother. And, she's, <laughs> and, and she starts thinking, okay, this is clearly my mother pretending to be his mother. But then she starts noticing that there's no one on the line, yep. and that Norman is filling in the blanks for it. And that Norman is actually starting to, you know, sort of like go go wild again. And that's what leads us to like a really, really crazy finale where she tries to dress up as his mother and like command 
him and be like, Norman, I am your mother now. And so we start seeing them actually weaponize the psychology and the characters themselves weaponizing the Hitchcock images uh, on screen, including Norman, (laughs) which I love. Like the the fact that Norman kind of almost comes up with like a plan and, and uses his past trauma and his the relationship he had with his mother and mm-hmm. all that in order to act that out. Like, I love the shot of him, you know, he's on the phone and it's just him, uh, close up of his face on the phone and he's talking to his supposed mother and Mary goes up the stairs to check the other phone line and then what the camera does is it looks at Norm and Norman does this kind of like smug smile like he's like he's getting away with what like his plan or whatever. To, uh, to kind of mm-hmm. trick her. And I just love that y- you start to, all these, like, everybody's individual plan starts to pile on top of each other. Like, because at one point the doctor calls Norman and the Norman acts as if he's going insane to the doctor because Mary's yes. in front of him. So now the doctor thinks, oh shit, did, is Norman actually going over the deep end again? When all he's doing is just trying to trick Mary into thinking that he's going insane. So there's all these things that are just kind of piling on top of each other well, by the and, end of the And, the and then when he eventually shows up at the house, he sees Meg Tilly in the mother's outfit with a knife. <laughs> right. and, he's like, and, and, and he's like, I've got you. I knew it was you and your mother. And she yeah. stabs and kills him. And he falls off the banister and like breaks his spine yeah. on the he, banister on the way down dude he lands <laughs> he actually lands on the knife that goes it the knife yeah. <laughs> lands on the railing and then he lands on that knife chest first it's one of the most insane kills that i've seen <laughs> and i just couldn't believe it was in psycho too uh, um another thing that she does yeah this with, was with, before with, with, the reveal is uh as she's looking through the house because norman and her are suspecting that somebody else was looking through the people which i guess was the mother uh at the end of the day but um, we don't know that yet. And so when Mary is looking through the house, while she's alone, she actually goes, Mother, are you there? And I thought it was like this kind of ironic thing because that's how he refers to his mother, obviously. So she's just calling him mother uh, as like a, just kind of like a, you know, little playful thing or whatever as she's looking for her. But what she's actually doing is asking her actual mother, Hey, are you there? Like, is the plan going to fruition like yeah and i just i love that little thing that they added in there it's just small little details that you can see uh, add up by the by the time you everything's revealed in the finale i mean the lesson of this movie is be careful what you pretend to be because not only will you if you pretend to be a murderer to drive a murderer insane you will end up actually murdering someone and then being killed by the police <laughs> in the commission of your <laughs> gaslighting act <laughs> of a human being that's right <laughs> lesson learned yeah, well, and, and I, I really love, too, that Norman Bates, um, or I guess Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates, like, the the way that he, he layers this experience as, again, like, the, the emotion of, you know, sort of like this paranoid horror experience that he's going through. Because obviously, like, it's, it's very creepy, and Franklin does a really good job replicating a lot of the suspense elements and then updating them so they're even more graphic, and that it's even more kind of insane because there's so many different layers of of people trying to trick each other and trying to yeah. get each other to act and, and to be violent. And N- Anthony Perkins, just when, when he looks at her and he's just like, in, in, in complete, like, quivering, stuttering shutdown, he's like, I'm becoming confused again, aren't I? 
and he says it so devastatingly. Oh, I know. And he and 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 he apparently, by the way, Anthony Perkins actually was the one who got this scene added into the film because Franklin agreed to to put it in. But the scene where Meg Tilly like holds on to him. And oh, yeah. he basically just goes, you know, my mother used to bring me toasted cheese sandwiches when I was sick. And she did all kinds of good things, you know, before she went mad, before she became abusive. And he eventually, you know, drove him crazy and he eventually poisoned her because she was she was abusive and then created this abusive, everlasting, you know, sort of like vision of her that exists inside of his head and is always there berating him. Um, and he's talking about how he has memories of the few good things that she did. And he says that I can't remember them as well as I remember the horrors. And she tells him, you know, you got to remember the good things. And he's like breaking down being like, I can't, the, the doctors took them all away. Right. Um, and it, and it's just, it's, it's so heartbreaking to watch that. And then to watch, you know, sort of like the chaos of the finale of everyone feeling like they know what's best for Norman or, you know, trying to impose their own will and reality onto Norman's and at the same time, like literally bending the reality of the film basically. And the, and, and again, it's not just Franklin that's rebuilding these images. It's the characters at the, by the end that it's, it's revealed that they are literally bringing back the mother character and the wig and the dress and the knife. And it's just so sad and devastating that when we get to the finale and we realize that it, they successfully worked it, that when, you know, all is said and done, Norman got off really lucky because all of the, the violence of the finale where, you know, sort of like the social worker character is killed and uh, Leela is killed with a very brutal knife through the mouth that comes out the back of the head. <laughs> Damn, yeah. All these graphic deaths can yeah, now was, be attributed. Yeah, solid ownage there. <laughs> yeah, can all be attributed to sort of Meg Tilly and her mother and the police shoot her. And we go back to the police station where there's obviously the very infamous Hitchcock scene where they go, well, it looks like Norman did it all. And, uh, you know, we're going to explain to you exactly how that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I, they do also repeat the basement sequence with Meg Tilly there as well. And Norman there gets away scot-free that on a sort of image level, they have a very clear idea of what happened here, even though we know that it was way more complicated than that because the whole film is it's spent going, is this Norman? Is this a third party? Is this Norman's mother? Is this, you know, um, Meg Tilly and, and her mother? And what the re actual result was that it was a combination of all of those things together um, that actually, you know, brought us back to, psycho brought us back to the realm of psycho yeah. and because by the end of the film norman bates is back he is back to being the norman bates that we remember and we watch him viciously beat his actual biological mother to death with a shovel because she comes back and is just like you know norman we could we could you know be a family again yeah. you know i i wanted to protect you as will mentioned you know she <laughs> was kind of like the the third party actor kind of behind the scenes who was actually doing most of the actual killing. And yeah, when she comes back and you know, Norman is, you know, he's, he's being quiet. He's being, you know, who he normally is. He's sitting at the dinner table and then he just kills her 
and it's really yeah, she's brutal. Like, she's, and like, uh, she's like, she's uh, like, Norman, we, she's like, Norman, we can be a family again. And he's like, okay. And then kills her. <laughs> and, then he and then Yes. But I love that too. Cause afterwards you get the shot of him carrying the mother up the stairs in the same angle that you got uh, of him carrying her down the stairs in the original. Uh, and then you start yeah, to have yeah. him talk like her. You got the voice of like, you know, your mother loves you and all that kind of shit. So it was just such a great little callback, and and uh, you know it's the cycle continues kind of thing. It's it, it's a great Exa- exactly ending, great exactly ending. because because the whole movie is just people collectively using his mind as a shaping tool for their own ends and imagining these incredible you know horrific images that they then project onto him that eventually do stick that all of that cyclical violence and all of those horrible images that we remember for the first psycho and that are dictated sort of like, or mandated, I guess by a sequel, a sequel needs to deliver on what you expect. And they, and Franklin has, and that's sort of the genius of this film is that by the time we do get to the end, and Norman has become Norman. It's it's almost like a little bit of like a like a a reverse origin story a little bit. He makes his way back to where he was. And normally, you know, all the fans would be like, "Woo! We got there. We did it. Norman's back, baby, and he's better than ever." But instead, <laughs> it's just infected by so much sadness. Oh, I know. And, and and genuine horror and and regret for it. And you just can't help but feel bad. You're just I like mean, even there, that. There's nothing to enjoy there. No, I know. Like like you said, even that doctor scene where it's kind of revealed how he was, you know, quote unquote cured from all of this. It still requires him to get rid of all the goodness inside him too, or at least the, the good memories that he had of his, of his mother and all that. Cause he says, it's like the only thing that he had left was the smell of the sandwiches, something like that. So yeah. it's just, there's such sadness in that, that even the, the people he went for his psychological help and that seemed to actually still be kind of helping him. Like the doctor, although he doesn't uh, stick around very, uh, often he, he still does try to help Norman. Um, it's just, mm-hmm. there's such a sadness that even the result of that was he had to get rid of all of those good memories that he had as well. You know, there's just n- nothing left really besides this, uh, uh, this killer now, um, by the end of it. So yeah, it's, it's very, very sad. Uh, really good. Yeah. Loved it. Which is not, not what I, I expected when I when I queued up uh, Psycho 2, I'll tell you that. But uh, pivoting towards the reductive rating round, this one gets like the solid two to high four for me. I, I, I rewatched it um, for this, and I, I, I just, you know, I'd always kind of heard that it was just like, you know, a surprisingly good sequel. But I found myself like genuinely kind of like moved by this. And I think that Franklin yeah. uh, directs the hell out of it. And um, Tom Holland, obviously, who uh, of, of Fright Night and, and Child's Play, uh, fame, I think, actually does a really good job with the the, the screenplay, and it sounds like yeah. Anthony Perkins was also involved uh, in the screenplay at a certain point that they they let him sort of dictate the way that that certain scenes uh, ended up getting playing out when they when they were shooting them. And Anthony Perkins just has a really excellent performance. You feel like he really understands this character, and he was very excited to do something unique, which was, you know, we talked about in Psycho that there is a really icky feeling you get when Norman Bates's point of view takes over the film, yeah. uh, because obviously very famously halfway through the film, Janet Lee is killed and we were identifying with her sort of in like a, sort of like a, a typical on the run cross country thriller a little bit. And then it turns into something much weirder and darker and scarier when Norman Bates's point of view takes over. And then in this, the whole movie is once again, Norman's point of view, 
but the point of view has aged it's changed it's 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 more resigned it's it's sadder and i think that the way that franklin does that while also updating it with 80s gross slasher elements really uh, is is painful to watch again you're 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 expecting something classical and you're getting something way messier and way grosser and way sadder and the way he deliberately weaponizes just that iconography this famous images that you just can't get around it's like if you're gonna make a sequel to a Hitchcock film you won't get you won't be able to sort of uh, move away from obviously the very famous Hitchcock images that, that he made. And so the way that that aligns the audience bloodlust of watching a (laughs) film, and then obviously the character bloodlust at the same time. And you just spend the whole movie watching Anthony Perkins do his best to not indulge in it. He, he tries his absolute hardest and you feel it and it's painful. Just wants to be a good boy. And well, and and in the end, he can't do it. I the, think there's the sort of a, like, I think there's kind of like a. I think there's kind of like a also like a, a, a meta commentary here about about sequels, like the, the sort of humor yeah. of the idea of like Psycho Two. Uh, Norman Bates is back, and the fact that they made a whole movie about how it's Norman Bates desperately trying not to kill anyone, but everyone yes. around him. Uh, force, forcing him into a situation where he may do that and, and killing people themselves, it's sort of like the stand-in for, like, they are like the audience. Like, this is what we want from a, exactly. a horror movie, a sequel to Psycho, is we want Norman Bates to fucking get that knife out again and get the wig and dress and start going fucking Psycho mode, you know? Like, uh, yeah. But it's the whole movie is just about how he really doesn't want to do that. And, and yeah. you know, like, and then everyone around him, like, essentially makes him become the thing that we all want from him, which is, you know, like a, a terrifying psychosexual mass murderer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so, so by the time we hit those images where he is that thing, you're just kind of like depressed and guilt ridden as an audience member. Yeah, you couldn't have <laughs> which any is, which fun is with really, the 80s really, really cool thing. <laughs> Most of the time with all this like excess gore and stuff, you get to have a lot more fun with it. But uh, with this one, it really there is so much of a, a sadness to the film, really, because Norman is being gaslit the whole time when all he wants to do is just like lay in his bed and, and just live a normal life, run the <laughs> hotel, you know. Uh, and 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 people just drive him into more insanity again. So there's there is a he, he, real. He just sadness. wants those cheese sandwiches, man. Yeah, man, just a, a, a delicious cheese sandwich for mother. Come on now. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> but, uh, I, I give it a four out of five as well. Um, I just I loved that it kind of set me in this mood where you know I'm watching a, a psycho sequel. I'm ready for the kills. I'm, uh, it's the '80s, so I expected a lot more and all that. And then they kind of make you feel almost guilty about feeling that way. Uh, by having him gaslit the whole time and and having this more psychological mystery element to it rather than just a, a pure horror element. So that was just very cool. I didn't expect it. Really smart, very very intelligent. Um, great screenplay, awesome directing. Love the the uh, the shots that were kind of like a homage to the original, but were being used in a different way to kind of establish the psychology of this movie. Uh, it was it was great. Uh, so yeah, four out of five for me. Sweet for you, Will. I'd give it. I mean, I'd give it a solid like three out of five. I would say that this was this was this was pretty good, better than I was expecting. Three out of five. Nice. Has anyone nice. seen the uh, third one by any chance? I have not. I haven't either. I was just curious if anyone had uh, a quick thing if it was good because I think it's directed by. Uh, uh, Perkins, is it not? Anthony Perkins, yeah. Which is just interesting to have Norman himself direct the movie. So, anyway, 
yeah, I mean, I've, I've always just been curious of checking it out because it was uh, shot by Bruce Surtees, who's a very famously Clint Eastwood cinematographer for like on like Dirty Harry and High Plains Drifter and okay. like The Beguiled and stuff. So and Sudden Impact. So like a, a lot of really cool um, sort of like 60s and 70s movies. And so I, I bet you that movie looks really good. And Anthony Perkins uh, clearly understands the character. Yeah, so I imagine it, it. There could be something going on there. Yeah, I definitely sure. haven't heard as many good things about it as I have of, as uh, Psycho. Sequel here, yeah. But we are going to be right back soon, and we are going to be talking about a third movie in a franchise, which is liked more than the second one. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Which is a good segue. We're going to be right back, and we're going to be talking about Exorcist 3. A man we thought had died 17 years ago. He is inside with us! He will never get away! This time you're going to lose. The real terror is back. George C. Scott in William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist 3. All right, we are back and we are talking The Exorcist 3, the 1990 American psychological horror film written and directed by William Peter Blatty. It is obviously the third installment in The Exorcist series, which is an adaptation of um, Blatty's uh, novels, The Exorcist, and this one is an adaptation actually of his second novel, uh, Legion. And Exorcist 2 is the only one not written by Blatty. We talked about that one just a couple weeks ago where you know they, they sort of um, conscribed a... Uh, playwright to kind of take over and Borman, uh, John Borman uh, took over and John Borman is a very cool director, but that, that film is just, uh, it, it, it's much maligned. And I think Jamie and I liked it more than other people like it, but I definitely yeah. understand when you look at the overall exorcist franchise, how that one is the one that sticks out as a bit of a sore thumb <laughs> and how uh, like Borman is kind of weirdly optimistic about it. Like he kind of, he, he, he takes the exorcist elements and very much uh, literalizes them into this psychodrama where there's kind of hope for the Reagan character and hope with this sort of like new transformation and abilities and, you know, sort of like a, a, a new humanity he has a vision for almost, even though there is still, you know, obviously horror elements to it. And also, uh, James yeah. Earl Jones in a full body locust outfit. <laughs> yeah. But there's there's locusts there's locust in exorcist too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, of- I, I, I fucking hate exorcist too. I hate exorcist too. <laughs> I Absolute dog shit. Uh, but I like what you say about like, how Borman has like a sort of a a, 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 a strangely hopeful vision uh, for Reagan and like the, the Exorcist universe. And it's just like get that shit out of here. Back to Exorcist Three, the absolute evil and squalor of humanity. No hope. No oh, fucking yeah. nothing nice at all. There it you is go. just it is pure. It's inescapable. Like, like we live in a, a like 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 the, the the world we live in is hell itself. And like every single human being is just like a fucking is just a mound of miserable corruption and degradation and a tool Hell for yeah. demons to Let's use. Let's fucking go. Love it. Yeah, just yeah that we are just like we are just a portal through which like the ancient demons work their will in the world to just profane God, uh, humanity, just any anything anything decent or beautiful. Uh, will be destroyed by by the legion that is like just coursing through our fucking blood by the the 1990s. So, uh, yeah, Exorcist three, a fucking like I, I swear to God, 
I, I like Exorcist 3 even more than the original Exorcist. And like, nice. you know, the, Exorcist, the original Exorcist is, is, is a bulletproof classic. I fucking, I fucking love every second of it. But man, Exorcist 3 is, as a horror movie, is so much fucking better. It is so much scarier than the original Exorcist, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could see it because I, I mean, like, I, I personally prefer the original Exorcist, but I think that this one gets everything that the original Exorcist did right and definitely ups the overall, like, merciless dread. Yeah. That, like, w- like William Peter Blatty um, obviously went back. And when, and when Jamie and I talked about the original Exorcist, like, obviously we really loved, you know, uh, we loved when the little girl said swear words and spins her head around <laughs> in the devil wilds out and all of that. Of but we kind of realized on our last watch that it was a much sadder and lonelier movie. And it's actually for large portions, just like kind of like a really bleak drama about like pain and alienation and despair and how ultimately that obviously the evil in the world wants you to sort of like feel those things. Yeah. I view the original exorcist as sort of like a, as sort of like it, it perfectly anticipates like the Reagan era and the backlash mm-hmm. against like 60s and 70s counterculture, specifically like divorce, uh, women in the workplace, and like, you know, sort of uh, the sexual revolution. Cause like, you know, like the fact that they made the, uh, a, a child, uh, like a, a small girl who is, you know, being raised by her mother because the father is not in the picture. And it's just like, like the, that, that is like, that is the representation of evil being brought into like the heart of Washington, D.C. and like America's imperial core is this idea of like, you know, the single mother or, and like a divorce being like, like that is the portal through which uh, the demon Pazuzu uh, works, does his, his evil works on the world. And that I, was, I think that, like that, a, that, that was, that was the path. He's like, like, I see a gateway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it, per- it perfectly anticipates the kind of, like, right-wing cultural backlash to the uh, counterculture and sort of sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. Yeah, but but the thing that really stood out to us, I think, when we watched it was the Father Karras character, who I, after finally checking out Exorcist 3, I can say, is probably the character who has been dealt the worst hand of any character in, like, movie history. <laughs> yeah. And just has the worst time. He spends that whole first movie just doubting his faith and doubting medicine because his mother passes away and he basically, you know, doesn't have any sort of sense of belief anymore. And if there's anything that sort of carries us through William Peter Blatty's work, it's that, you know, uh, belief in it, anything, even the most horrible thing is at least, you know, it's a form of conviction of some kind. And famously the exorcist ends on the, um, the non-believer father Karras, basically uh, having the a pure selfless act of belief that anyone has ever had, <laughs> transporting the demon from Reagan's body into his own body and then killing himself and launching himself down those steps, which is an iconic shot. And uh, s- similar to Psycho 2, that shot is brought up all kinds of different times throughout this film. It's actually seen I, as like a recurring dream. And what I love about the way that they apply it, at least in the first, uh, the first time they show it, is it, it's uh, a priest with this younger assistant and uh, he mentions it, and and he thinks about it. And what they do is they do a quick cut right to the guy bursting through the window, and then the POV of him falling down the stairs. And so it's just this very abrasive and violent memory that that seems to just kind of like enter into their minds uh, at any given point. It's it's just something that's that's kind of lingering there, uh, something they're constantly thinking about, looming over them. And uh, yeah. and I love the way that they applied that uh, in the introduction. 
Yeah, well, and, and what's interesting, too, is that Blatty, um, he, when he wrote this, he actually originally wrote this as a screenplay for William Friedkin because he was wanting to make another Exorcist follow-up. But William Friedkin got tied okay. up. I think he was doing, I can't remember exactly what he was working on, but he wasn't able to do um, a, a follow-up to The Exorcist. I want to say it was a, he would have wrote this around the time that Friedkin would have been doing Sorcerer, I think. Um, okay. And so Friedkin couldn't do it. And so what Blatty did instead is he turned it into a book, and that book is called Legion, and it gives us the very famous line in the film that it, we are Legion, we are many. Um, and so that eventually became a bestseller, which is how this then turned in back into a movie, was because people loved the sequel book to The Exorcist so much. Um, and uh, kind of cool, too, uh, that book came out in 1983, the same year that Psycho 2 came out. So people oh, were nice. reading Exorcist 2 the same year that Psycho 2 came out. And it took until 1990 before they could eventually turn this into a film because it got into a little bit of development hell. The, John Carpenter was at one point attached to direct it. Um, and I think they they didn't agree on some of the places that it should have went. So Blatty eventually kind of um, took over for directing. And similar to Psycho 2... Um, he has a little bit of a subversive genre twist on it because again, um, psycho two, again, we, we talked about at length about how it, it really repositioned that film as something much sort of sadder and ickier, um, even somehow than, than the original psycho and how sort of like aging and time has sort of taken place. And Blatty has done something similar here where he's, you know, 16 years have, have sort of passed in between the two films and, that time has really taken a toll on these characters and it's really expressed just in almost like the, the structure of the film and the editing patterns. There's constant interruptions of like sort of like surreal dream sequences that sort of mm. bring to life a lot of the feelings that these characters are having. And the two main characters of the film are George C. Scott um, playing the lieutenant from the God. first film who was friends with Father Carey. God level. Yes, amazing. So good. And then, God, God, um, George C. Scott. And he's, he's taking over the role from uh, Lee J. Cobb who was very good in the original. But man, only George C. Scott could inhabit the role in this movie because like he has several, several of like the classic patented George C. Scott meltdowns, like the hardcore oh. turn it off sequence. But like, yes. but, you know, but, 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 but watching things even worse than what George C. Scott was watching in hardcore, let's put it that way. He's got like, it's just, he's like <laughs> just like absolutely fucking like just coiled, repressed rage and anger yeah. at this like, just like fallen world that he is essentially a garbage man for as like he, a DC homicide detective. And yeah, yeah, dude. Sorry, what is what is what, what is his line that he gets? He gets a uh, the whole world is a homicide victim. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. And okay, I, love, I mean, you, you brought the, up the dream sequences in this movie, and we just I, I gotta bring up right off the bat that Exorcist Three features, in my opinion, like maybe my favorite dream sequence ever portrayed in a movie. Oh, it's great. He's got in a dream. He walks around heaven. And heaven is essentially like a, like a giant train station filled with people waiting for their train and being sort of like, a, uh, I guess, like a, administered by angels. And the angels, uh, one of them is portrayed by Fabio, the, uh, the hunky male model and romance novel cover star of the 90s. And then, best of all, Patrick Ewing portrays the angel of death. Patrick Ewing, and this is only because of William Peter Blatty's connection with Georgetown, 
that it was just he's such a fucking uh, like a, a, a fucking Hoyas fan that he had to get Patrick Ewing in a brief <laughs> cameo playing the angel of death in George C. Scott's Amazing. dream sequence about going to heaven. Fucking incredible. Oh man! Yeah, and, and and in that scene, he's just seeing like the victims of many of the murders that that he's been seeing. Um, and and at that point too, he also sees uh, Father Dyer, who is who is his best friend and his friend um, from the original film. Who at the end of the Exorcist film, they decide that they're going to go and watch a film because you know they they're mourning the he, loss. He's the stand-in for the audience. Their friend, Father he's, cares. Yeah, he's the film buff, Catholic priest. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and uh, the one that says that his favorite movie is The Fly. The one, the one says The Fly, and then the other says It's a Wonderful Life. No, Ed, Ed Flanders is the guy going to see It's a Wonderful Life. It's the other priest who says that his favorite movie right. is The Fly, which is which is a pretty rock and roll priest. The David oh, Cronenberg yeah. version. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, I, and I was going to say there's another movie about sort of like transformation and mutation of the body and psychology right. and, and, and all kinds of stuff going on there. But what's really cool about this and, and what Will sort of brought up about how um, George C. Scott kind of sees himself as the garbage man. The thing I was kind of the most reminded of was like that quasi-noir horror genre that kind of came up around this time. Yeah. Most famously, people I think know about it, I think, because of Seven. Oh, for sure. Um, and like the, so he, so he reminded me a lot of the Morgan Freeman character in seven where, you know, he sees every day up close and is tired of it, you know, just what people are capable of doing to each other in the world and is, is constantly, you know, trying to stop it. But from the point of view of always being too late of always seeing the aftermath and one decision that Blatty makes that I think is really cool is that you actually don't see much of the violence that takes place in this film. Much of it is actually described to you in the screenplay. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. You, you, you mostly you see it only in the actually, well, and, and hardly even there though. Like I, yeah, like, I mean like sure. when he, like we don't see, you know, really like the young boy's body. It's actually hidden underneath uh, a tarp, and you, he doesn't actually see Father Dyer's body, which is like completely drained of blood. And the young boy has been yeah, like yeah. <laughs> decapitated and put Jesus's head on his body. And then they've also dressed Jesus's uh, statue head in blackface on top of his body. Like none of this stuff, other than in like the final exorcism finale, do you actually end up seeing? a lot of that horror and it's very right. important I think because what you see is people describing it to each other you get a close up of George C. Scott's just absolutely depressed face while someone tells him yeah that nurse's guts were entirely ripped out of her body and replaced with rosemary and <laughs> rosaries um, good lord <laughs> and so what you really kind of get is this more like really atmospheric kind of like detective movie, which, uh, you know, Blatty being a novelist has a lot more uh, exposition and kind of like procedural elements to it that works. And a lot of the images are frequently kind of like static, um, which does bring a lot of impact when all of a sudden there's bursts of like surrealness or dread or, or violence that stands out. I mean, I think yeah. this very famously and has this is one why, of this the is why... greatest jump scares of like all time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh my yeah. God. Oh my God. We can get to that. But I mean, uh, it's, uh, I'm interested that you said that John Carpenter was once attached to this movie and I would have loved to, obviously God Carpenter, I'd love to see any, his take on anything, but Carpenter essentially has a sense of humor about everything he does, even, even right. in his yeah. serious movies. Like, like uh, he has, he has a, he has a, he, he lacks a certain self seriousness that, that it always has kind of a light touch to, to his works. Um, where like where it is a sensibility that doesn't match with this material. And it's like, it's only William Peter Blatty could 
could have directed this movie, like written and directed it. Like this is like such a personal vision. And like I said, like all of the details, the descriptions of what the fucking like the the killer, like uh, yeah, decapitating a boy and putting like a blackface Jesus head on him is just like he. It, only, it takes a it's Catholic insane. psycho like William <laughs> Peter Blatty to to push the level of blasphemy. Like only a, a Catholic who believes in this shit could create the level of blasphemy and profanity that he <laughs> creates in this movie and take it seriously. Like that's the cru- that's yeah. the crucial thing. That's why this movie is scary. Is because William Peter Blatty believes in all of this shit. And I know he's like he is a devout Catholic. But it takes a devout Catholic to show you, like, oh, like all this shit is like fucking bizarre and scary. Like, I don't want anything to do with yeah. this shit. Like, get the, keep the Catholic Church away from me. This is what they actually. I wish believe I didn't in. believe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh man. Well, and, and and that's why it's so important too that like the main character in obviously the two Exorcist films that that he wrote is someone who is a skeptic. It is someone who doesn't really believe, and in in some capacity by the end of the film does believe but what they believe is in like the pure horror of what people can do to each other like that's eventually what they end up believing in and we'll get to it because obviously very famously George C. Scott has an incredible monologue uh, near the end of the film in this where he he does lay out exactly what it is that he does believe in yeah um, and, and, and large like, parts I, I of this I all the aborted babies and the corruption <laughs> and misery of this world yeah. <laughs> I believe in you yeah, well, and, and what's really interesting is that um, I actually watched two versions of this movie uh, because there is the theatrical cut, um, which is very, very good, and then there's the director's cut, which is also very good, and but actually pretty significantly different in yeah. the scenes where it does occur because basically the structure eventually of this film is that obviously George C. Scott is hunting down um, this Gemini killer, which, by the way, is a, a, a very overt reference to the Zodiac killer, oh, yeah. who uh, wrote a letter to the paper saying that he loved the the original Exorcist film and said that it was one of his uh, one of the funniest satires he'd ever seen, or something like that. <laughs> so this is William Peter Blatty giving a shout out to the Zodiac, the actual Zodiac killer. Yeah, he has yeah. The Gemini killer. Big, big fan of my who, work. Big big fan. Zodiac killer. <laughs> good friend of mine. He's done some tremendous. <laughs> yeah. That's my stuff. He loves my writing. He's got a quote on um, the back also, of the book. What, yeah, yeah. What I like about that, though, and I wasn't aware that the Zodiac was a fan of the Exorcist movie, but like especially in this movie, where it is dealing with um, a serial killer that that he is arrested and been executed, is like someone is doing like a, the exact copycats of his crimes and using details and sort of like uh, touches about the way he kills people that like n- the press couldn't have been aware about. But uh, I like it, it. It plays like the Zodiac connection plays really nicely with this idea of like that we are legion and that that like that that this yes. this this germ of evil has like there's a sort of like epidemiological quality to evil that like it in, it infects people and is passed like from body to body because like famously with the zodiac killer like we have no fucking clue how many of those murders he actually did or what were copycats right. or what were things that he claimed credit for. And there's always this doubt about, you know, did we really get the guy? I mean, with Zodiac famously, like no one was ever arrest prosecuted for it. But yeah, this, 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 this legion, this sense of legion uh, of evil being sort of born out as a virus into the world and that like that there are multiple copies of copies of copies of these acts of such extreme depravity and cruelty and blasphemy that are like just like the, the act itself is so powerful that it infects the world with like the residue of its own cruelty. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, George C. Scott is horrified when he learns that the whoever chopped off the boy's head with garden shears and put a blackface Jesus on him and crucified him with r- rowing oars, uh, it turns out he's probably not the same person who uh, we saw kill the priest in the confession booth in like this really moody montage of like laughter turning into screaming, then images of stained glass with blood on them. And again, all kinds of sort of like religious symbols and iconography. I also just love being uh, tainted and mutated. Um, I love the way that they and George, use and George, the voice as well in that that confessional murder uh, because you know it it appears as if it's a a older woman, and then as it gets more maniacal, the voice gets you know deeper, more demonic, and then what they do later on when we get to uh, Brad Dorif is as he's doing all his demonic monologues, they do these very subtle sound changes where his voice will go slightly deeper, maybe a little bit more reverberation, mm-hmm. things like that. And I just liked how they, they kind of established that in, in, the first, uh, in the first part of this movie where it's like, you know, th- this, it's basically, it's the Legion, right? It's, it's like this, this enclave of, of demon souls and, and things like that taking over people. So when it gets to Brad, who is, I guess, the like personification of all of them or whatever, uh, and he's going through all these different sounds and different voices. It's it's very effective and it's very cool. Oh, it's so it's so fucking good. The, the, yeah. The, the monologue the monologue that Brad Dorif does, like in his cell, where he sort of cycles through these different personalities. Uh, once again, God, Brad Dorif, um, untouchable. It's so probably good. Like one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite performances in a horror movie. It is genuinely too, unsettling and frightening. And what I love yep. about Dorif as an actor is that he is never afraid to just open up all cylinders and like yeah. just go to a thousand percent from like the first word. You know, he, he, does, he does it so big and he's a good enough actor that when he does it, like you don't see the strings being pulled. Like, yes. like a lesser actor would see, like the, 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 the extent to which he, the heart, how hard he plays this, like in the hands of a lesser actor, would seem comical. But it, because it's Dorif, it is so fucking unsettling and scary. And it's just like, I, I, you know, I'm not, I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to slander him or whatever, but like, I, it just, he just has this like coked up energy where you can like, you can <laughs> see his fucking, like his jaw just grinding yes. with every word that comes yeah, out of like his the, mouth. No, no, no one else incredible. could say. I like plays. <laughs> the way yeah, I know, and sound like <laughs> somehow cool and evil still. Like it's unbelievable. And I, what I love too about his like the physicality of his performance is, I mean, he's he's all restrained, right? He's in chains, so really all he can use yeah, is yeah. kind of like like jerks of his body and then big facial expressions. And the entire time yeah. he does this monologue, he's incredibly wide eyed. It's like he almost doesn't blink throughout the entire five minutes of him just staring into the camera talking. And like a demonic just, monologue at you, uh, and, and then also songs back and forth between being this like this this restrained, very like softly spoken, menacing to just like full on bearing all his teeth, crescendo, every vein, yeah, every vein popping out of his fucking forehead, just like screaming and, fucking poison and and fucking evil at Jersey Scott. And I love that too. He's throughout the, these scenes. He's just crying. There's this constant uh, this the, the, this constant line of a tear that's down his face. So it appears as if he's at the height of emotion all the time. Whether and it's not just like it's not sadness necessarily. It's just like he's at such a sensitive and powerful point that everything is just like expelling out of him, like anger, sadness, happiness, whatever it is. He's just feeling it all. 
uh, as he's as he's going through these these demonic monologues. And yeah, I just I thought when I was watching this for the first time, uh, I just couldn't believe that more people don't talk about it. Like this is one of my favorite villain performances of all time for sure. Now I I, I love undoubtedly, it. Without, yeah. unquestionably, like it's just it, it's almost like. If for no other reason to watch this movie other than to see what Brad Dorif does yeah. in the role of the Gemini killer. Because it is, and, like I said, genuinely, genuinely frightening. Right. And, and it's also yeah. in a movie, too, where we have George C. Scott, who has just al- already been killing it. Like his, his random outbursts of anger for people that are being incompetent in front of him and stuff is just amazing. And for this scene, they really hyper focus on Brad. Like you only get a couple reaction shots of George throughout this. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's unbroken, just focused on his face. It is so yeah. intense. And he does it right to the camera, too, which I thought was really smart. And they're very long takes. So it gives you a chance to really set yourself into this very evil shit that's going on. It's it's great. Okay. Loved it. Okay, okay. Yeah, uh, we, we got to talk about it now because you mentioned long takes. Mm-hmm. And we got to talk about like the the marquee scare in this movie is one of the best fucking individual like oh, set, yeah. set up set up scares in any horror movie ever and it is astonishing because like William Peter Blatty like he, and he directed like uh, one or two other movies I think uh, was it uh, The Ninth Configuration which is sort of uh, right. a, bit, a bit more wacky it's a very good movie I, w- I would recommend checking that out as well but like he's not like an accomplished like virtuoso like auteur like, he's not like William Friedkin you know what I mean? Right. Who's like at that level of fucking skill and talent. But the confidence and fucking like the, the, the skill with which, which he pulls off the directing in this movie is so impressive to me from a guy who like yeah. is, mostly a no, is mostly a novelist, like not a filmmaker. And particularly like, 100%. The, you know, like the basically the, you know, like the, like the, the most iconic scene in this movie like the like the, the the most memorable scare and one of the most memorable scenes in any movie ever is this incredibly long set up in a hospital hallway of an empty hospital hallway with like a security guard and a nurse an unbroken shot that goes on for like five ten minutes almost of just like of just ratcheting up this tension and you don't know what's going to happen and then they trick you because like the nurse goes into a room because she hears something and there's like a guy in a hospital bed and he sort of like jolts her awake and you're like oh like that's the jump scare and then but no it just restarts the whole thing over again (laughs) And like doesn't leave anything at all. Same and then, angle. Of course, same angle, and you're just wondering what's going on here. Like the, it, it, you think you like it, the way it, the way it subverts your expectations by thinking that you've made it out of like the yeah. jump scare that you know is coming, and then just pushes it so far beyond that. So you're like you're almost getting bored, and then bam, it fucking hits you with like the fucking the the, the medical shears. They're like I, I love I love that that device as like the killer's implement. It's like uh, this is the uh, the med- the giant pair of uh, medical scissors that we use to cut off people's heads. It's just like, well, what's that for? Why is that in the hospital? <laughs> what, yeah. what procedure is uh, the, the, is, the, is the decapitation device being used? We have more to get his head off. Stat. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I also love when the when, when the one doctor has to say that they just recently bought new ones that, <laughs> yes, the yes, that one yeah. came in this week and they were like okay yeah. so you don't know what happened to the other ones is what you're saying <laughs> yeah. so we we've we, we've we've got the murder weapon the, the, my favorite thing too about that shot by the way that because it it is obviously an incredible static long take and the way that it ratchets up the the tension and the way that it kind of messes with you while you're watching it is incredible my favorite detail of it is that blatty 
throws in a very old school William Friedkin 70s zoom right when she runs out of that room. Yeah. Because again, it, it it holds that static wide shot of that corridor for a very, very long time. And the second that that, um, you know, sort of like medical nurse comes out holding the shears and she chases after the other nurse, yep. she comes out so quickly and that zoom just hits so fast yep. right in on it and then smash cut to the decapitated Jesus statue. Oh God. There's, <laughs> Which there's, is just an I, incredible move. There, there so, so, so your brain just so puts much it together. Like that. There's so much stuff like that in this movie. And like, I, I have to underscore again for like a guy who is like, you know, not like known as an amazing filmmaker, like the, the fucking, the confidence balls and then precision that it took for him to pull that, that whole sequence off is like, is astonishing. It's incredible. Like to oh, hold yeah. that shot as long as he does and have it fucking pay off in such an amazing way is like, I, I mean like that, that's, that's fucking, that, that, that's a God, that's a masterclass right there. Tears in my eyes yeah. at it. And I think there's like the, the two small details that really, uh, uh, come out to me is there right before the, the ghostly nun figure comes out and does the decapitation, she actually does close and lock the door. So there's this, uh, there's this added, just kind of supernatural effect of, of, of this, this, the door this, opening after yeah, she's locked it. And, and, and you don't hear it. It's very quick. She just turns around and then she, the, the nun or whatever comes after her. And also just having the, the, this character who I don't, I guess we never really, it ne- it's never revealed like who was, you know, under the spell or whatever, but because she's in this very long kind of caped outfit, there's this there's this kind of ghostly element to it as well because it's just yeah. so quick. It's like two seconds then, of this, you know, this long robed white nun looking character and then decapitation done. And it's just and another, so and that, much that's thrown at you in that short amount of time. And another thing that's so impressive about it is that it's really the only jump scare in the movie. You know, in horror yeah. films, like the, the the jump scare, like that shock of making you sort of jolt in your seat, is it's the stock move, and it is kind of like the cheapest one of you know being right. like, man, manipulating you into uh, getting a desired effect out of the audience. But like, it, it's done so well and so effectively, and is so scary. But especially when it's like juxtaposed with all the other scares in the movie, or the exact opposite of that, there really they're, there's almost none of that like real like jolting like psycho stuff. It, the rest yeah. of the movie just has it just builds a sense of of ambient evil and menace like in the periphery mm-hmm. and in the margins of the screen so beautifully well, and, and so effectively. And it's, it's all, a lot of it is like right right in your face. I mean, a really important element of this film that Blatty brings back that the original actresses did so well was that it really is a series of philosophical conversations and almost like a like strange like dialectics, which obviously yeah, as a writer, William Blatty is 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 sort of like prone to do. Um, but there there is this sense of like from the original film is that like this this everyday evil exists in a material way right in front of your eyes it's not even really yes. hiding yes and and it's its whole idea is that is is to make you despair is to make you feel really terribly and blatty does a really good job of just making you feel that there's a constant set they're like the gain is constantly too high on on on, on the sound there's constant like weird divergence into like surreal elements that just kind of are off kilter enough they kind of freak you out there's just a slow mounting dread and feeling of just horrible like almost like a like a, an unnatural feeling all the time even if you're just looking at a static shot of like a hallway 
And yep. th- that's a really, really Im- important thing because then most of what is actually evil is actually being said in words right in front of George C. C. Scott um, through Brad Dorif's character. Like he is telling him point blank. And again, we also mentioned too that most of what we find about the aftermath of a lot of these murders is is spoken to each other. So it's almost like words are bringing this into the material world in a way and that it, it already sort of like exists right in front of you. And one thing that's really interesting, because like going back a little bit, because there's actually multiple conversations with with Brad Dorff that he has, and obviously they are incredible. And the one thing you might be interested in, Will, is that in the director's cut, in Blatty's original version, um, Brad Dorff is actually the only performer in those scenes. Right, so it, ne- it never, it never crosses over into Father Callis inhabiting the same body. Yes. Oh, okay. So Brad, so 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 what you're left with with for George C. Scott is something a little bit more ambiguous, which is something that I could see Blatty wanting to do, which is that there's just this random guy in front of him telling him all of this stuff and he doesn't believe him, which may lead you to understand a little bit more of the conversations they have where he doesn't believe. Because, like, obviously, if you were seeing Jason Miller, and then all of who's the original Father Karras, and then all of a sudden he is Brad Dourif in front of your eyes, you might feel like there's something so a little they, bit more supernatural happening here. So he reduces the amount of on-screen supernatural elements in his original cut of the film that was sort of reconstructed by Shout Factory based on, like, a little bit of, like... I think the the VHS cut. So if you want to watch the cut, it does exist. But like the scenes that were cut from the theatrical are all um, like VHS footage, basically. And the film is actually shorter because it removes all of the overt exorcism angles and the overt supernatural things that we end up seeing, especially in the really, really big finale that we hit. But that just, I think, hammers home how good Brad Dourif's performances is that there was a version of this film that didn't have any of those supernatural elements. Yeah. And Brad Dourif's performance alone was, was meant to sell them. Like basically the way that he delivers lines, the way that all of a sudden his voice becomes like a high pitched Victorian children's voice while he sings a song for a second. Yeah. Or the way that the way that he will go from describing something like, a decapitated head can continue to see for 20 seconds. And I like (laughs) to hold it up so that it can see its own body. It's a little extra I throw in. Life is fun. (laughs) You know, the way that he says stuff like that and and the way that, I mean, at one point he even talks about, you know, he, the devil himself or the legion is in show business. It's the effect off comes the head, you know, thing, things like that, you know, like his performance and the way that he talks to George C. Scott was all that was meant to sell the horror of this film. Yeah. Basically, other than that one jump scare, Will's right. Like most of it is like just George C. Scott walking around and talking to people in basically his own sort of like procedural noir film. It's all atmosphere that gets you to like be like horribly um, scared about this film. Um, and as it sort of like pivots a little bit to the finale, because basically what's established is that Father uh, Karras, uh, who at the moment of his death from in the original film, that was the same moment that the Gemini killer, who George C. Scott was investigating uh, at the same time, uh, that's the moment that he is, I guess, uh, executed on the electric chair. And so what Pazuzu does is he takes the Gemini killer's basically uh, soul, I guess you could say, and he puts it into Father Karras's body before he uh, basic before he dies. Uh, but his body is so damaged 
that Brad Dorif, the Gemini killer, has basically been living in like a catatonic state inside uh, Jason Miller's body for 15 years. And he he goes on a big rant about it took so much time to get his brain cells back <laughs> and, you yeah. know, yeah. All, all, the, all this kinds of stuff. And there's there's a lot there's a lot of really cool writing that's happening here um but essentially he then now that he is back and he's active and he's a player he talks about the master he talks about someone who has wants to get his own revenge and so all the events of this film are actually pazuzu using the gemini killer who is using father karis's body to essentially get revenge on the events of the original exorcist film which is obviously really important and he is taking and, over and yeah, all and, and, kinds and, and, of different bodies inside this 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 hospital this christian hospital and using them as vessels to deliver all of this horror and once you realize that it becomes a whole lot scarier that anyone around you even like a nice little nurse could turn into someone who's going to chop your head off or who yeah. is going to crawl around on the fucking roof without you knowing that they're there yeah <laughs> That scene was ridiculous. And, 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 you know, like, and this and this and this ties in. This ties into the the original Exorcist as well, because it's like, you know, why why Reagan? Why why this little girl? Like, why would why why would evil choose that as their their host form? And like, the idea is because like, Bazuzu or Legion or Satan, evil, like the physical manifestation of it in our world. What they want to do is like is is to profane everything that we think is like innocent and holy. Yeah. So like like, like a, yeah. little, a little girl is like the perfect vessel, and then obviously, you know, b- best of all would be a priest, and that's why Bazuzu makes the decision to uh, take Father Callus and leave Reagan's body because like if you can corrupt, you know, uh, a, a vicar of Christ, then you know, uh, the, the, that that's that's like, that's the grand slam home run of evil, but like <laughs> yeah, it's this idea that like yeah. Um, like you said earlier, like the, the 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 real motivation for why Bazuzu or, or, or Legion does these these horrible acts and like commits these insane murders, like through using human beings as a vessel through his for his malevolent will, is to get us to doubt God. It's to get us to doubt like that there is any goodness in this life mm-hmm. at all. It's like that if the most profane and horrible acts can occur and be done by otherwise innocent normal people, then it's like like the the, the goal is to shatter our faith in God and, and like a benevolent I- loving world. Which I guess is is pretty much accomplished when we when we have like George C. Scott just just thrown up against the wall and essentially all he can say is that he believes in that evil like he he believes in that evil he believes in that hatred uh, and and, and well, yeah because because that, that, that's what's interesting is he doesn't refute him by doubling down on his faith and coming back to right. God and believing in God which is kind of like you know what the priests do at the end of the original Exorcist is they come back to some form of belief in, you know, what they can do and what they can do to fight back. What's so interesting is that George C. Scott, as we've mentioned, he decides to go, do you know what? I do believe. I believe that whatever the fuck you are is real and that all of this shit is just evil and fucked up. I believe in the tangible things I see in front of my eyes, which are mutilated corpses and rips and gashes and cuts. And even Brad Dourif goes on and says, you know what? Part of the fun of what I'm doing here is that um, Karis has to watch inside my body. He's inside with us. He'll never get away. His pain won't end is what Brad Dourif basically 
uh, keeps saying, and he says, let's call it revenge. <laughs> yeah. And I just, it's, it's great because you have George C. Scott throughout this entire film just essentially talking about a, a complete lack of faith, probably on, on both sides of the good and evil spectrum. And, uh, and to have him, in a way, battling the, the devil, to have him say that, I believe in you. He never says, like, I believe in God or I believe in the good as well or anything like that, right? It's just, it's purely I believe in the physical evil that's in front of me. And now that I do, maybe I can destroy it. And, and, that, and that, that is interesting. And that gets to, like, the, the amazingly tortured Catholic psychology going on in this movie. Because it's like, yeah. for them, the true believers, it's like whether you accept Jesus Christ into your heart or pray to God is, like, ancillary. Is like they, that almost doesn't matter. As long as you believe in fucking Satan and, like, the <laughs> physical presence of evil in this world that can also be, like, sort of supplicated and prayed to in its own way, that's good enough for us because that's what really matters about this life that we're leaving, li- living right now. Yeah. Yeah, well, and in that final exorcism, exorcism sequence, because I think George C. Scott, is, uh, Brad Dourif, basically is like, I have a way to help out with your unbelief which is by targeting his family. He tries to take over a nurse's body and shear his daughter's head off, which uh, definitely gets uh, George C. Scott to believe in that <laughs> moment when he sees that nurse fully possessed and trying to kill his daughter. And what a shot, too, of the of the shears barely oh, cutting man. the daughter. So that, that, yeah. I don't know what so they do, good. but there's this, like, it's, it's like a, a they, blurred... They speed up the footage a little okay, bit. Okay, yeah, yeah it's, it's great. It's really effective. Uh, and I also love the little detail of... George C. Scott going to the to the house and like frantically knocking on the door. And when the daughter opens the door and sees him with a gun in his hand, she just kind of goes, "Oh, hey, Dad!" Like it's completely normal. <laughs> like, like it's been, like she's been through this a couple times. It was it yeah, was very like you funny. know, like he like he comes back from the store and forgot to get milk, and he's got his gun in his hand. He's like, "Oh God, damn it! Oh, send me out! Get the milk!" <laughs> Such a funny little detail, man. I oh, George C. Scott is is a hilarious character in this and a very sad yeah, and angry the, way and, and of the, course and the only reason he isn't killed in that scene is because father morning shows up to brad duriff's cell where brad duriff now and and jason miller both have like these like red and yellow eyes yeah and the father pulls up and there uh, all of a sudden like snakes and fire and lions roars <laughs> and like rosary beads and everything start coming up and he's obviously trying to perform the exorcism now this was not also included in william blatty's uh director's cut the version of the director's cut is incredibly ambiguous which is that um, George C. Scott just goes to the cell and just point blank executes Brad Dourif. No evidence <laughs> like of any done. kind. I'm not that fucking he... around anymore. It's over. Yeah, like, yeah, he, yeah. He, he's basically he's basically like, do you know what? He made me believe, so I'm gonna just shoot him in his cell. But there's no there's no supernatural elements. There's no anything. Like there's nothing else. I will say, that Brad I Dourif like says. I like that a lot. Honestly, I w- I think just on a visual level and my entertainment level, uh, I do like the fact that you know things just go fucking insane it's like hell comes to the cell basically yeah but apparently the studio was just not pleased because they were like it, we get it but we, <laughs> we kind of wanted an exorcism it's a it's an exorcist film yeah you know yeah. uh so then they include this exorcism but uh, like the exorcism Blatty, scene like, is so fucking cool though it's, it's so yeah, it's it is so oh, crazy yeah, it is so that's, off that's the one hook thing that's and like so much more played up than the exorcism in the original movie like yeah. so much wild yeah, like phantasmagorical I mean, shit happens 
I mean, having because Vlad, Vladdy took a studio note and still made it his own. Because when that Father Morning is like screaming, "You are the author of pain, the corrupter of justice," and Brad Dourif just sticks him to the roof and starts pulling his skin yes. off his face, <laughs> yeah, like, and you hell? see his organs and his lungs start coming off of his body. And then and, you have oh the, the cro- like the, the the kid that was killed at the beginning, and he has the Jesus face that has the black face on it. He's crucified. Yeah, lightning the strikes the cell and he starts coming him. out of the subterranean yeah, hell. Like naked dead people are surrounding him just going like, ooh. And then you have the other priest that's on the other cross being crucified, all in all in a cell, all just in this like insane asylum cell. Uh, and it's just, the visual of that is, is unbelievable. It's just so over the top and I love it. I absolutely love yeah, and, it. Yeah, and, and, and George C. Scott, you know, being held to the wall right. in like a crucified stance yeah. where he's going, I believe in death, <laughs> disease, inhumanity, torture, anger, hate. I believe in murder, in pain, in cruelty, infidelity, slime and stink, and every crawling, perturbed thing, every possible ugliness and corruption, you son of a bitch. <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> God damn, it's incredible. Good. So good. And George C. Scott delivering it is, is obviously so incredible. And it does lead to this really awesome moment too, where Father Morning kind of comes back up and they they do speak to Father Karis, Jason Miller, Miller's character, um, and they tell him to resist the same way they were telling Reagan um, to resist. And he does, he is able to get Brad Dourif, the Gemini killer, out of his body for a split second. And what does he do? He begs for death. <laughs> yes. He says, yeah. do it now. Yes. Kill it. Kill it, yes. please. And, and George C. Scott just shoots him right in the goddamn head and in the chest <laughs> oh, and, baby. and kills him. And, and it's so brutal because 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 like we we felt so much like emotion for his character in that first film when he just yeah. you know, he he goes from being a skeptic to being you know a, a believer in his own way and then we see George C Scott get his exact same arc but it's so much bleaker and his result of becoming a believer is that he just has to kill one of his best friends who is begging for death because he's in so much pain. <laughs> he's been George in C that Scott for fifteen is, uh, years. Like, uh, the the other priest who got all his blood drained out of him and then and then Father Karras at the end like George C Scott he's got nobody to see movies movies with anymore he's not no one to go to the no. with. <laughs> and I, no. I do love that they also go every year and go watch uh it's a wonderful life which they've seen 37 times which just has to be the sweetest uh film uh, an optimistic film about like community and and yeah. collectivism a little yeah. bit like that it, it, it's just it's such a polar opposite view, vision of sort of like you know, how humans have organized themselves as a community than this film, which it couldn't be more bleak and more devastating and more disgusting. Yeah, just, yeah. More, and just like just the most despairing film about fucking like the human, be- like the nature of human beings and just like, like how, how easily corruptible we are and how much, and it just like, like you said that like that this, all of this evil is just in front of our faces all the time being like, hello everybody. It's evil. It's evil here. Here to, here to, here to corrupt you and here to uh, just carry out our ab- abominations in this world. But we just ignore it. And we just carry on with our lives every day. Like it's, it's like, it's not a big deal. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. God damn. What a picture. So good. 
reductive yeah, rating uh, well, round. I well, guess. well, pivoting towards reductive rating round and, and and final statements and everything. Yeah, I gotta I gotta say this this gets a, a really really high four for me. I think on even more watches, I I could even could even upgrade this one to match with the Exorcist for me. Yeah, um, possible because this is this is basically as as good as as I've I've been told. But my first watch, it was not quite the movie I expected. It is much yeah. more uh, slow and and it's not as sort of like uh it, it's not incredibly graphic and and also the version that blatty wanted was even less graphic than this version that existed so you could tell it wasn't like it like what he's going for is something in the human conversations that these people have yeah. that what you see on their faces and i think it's it's really important that you know that the same way that the original exorcist hit upon it that we are just kind of like frail vulnerable people that basically exist in a very biblically destructive and vengeful and painful world. And I think it's really important that there is all kinds of vividly disgusting harm done in this film, but it is, um, you know, not seen by us. It, it, it in fact focuses on the just despairing, effect it has on the people who we are watching and George C. Scott. And, and I mean, that's also why the performances are so important. Like Jason Miller is really good back as father Karras and Brad Dourif, obviously. Um, and George C. Scott and even Ed Flanders, um, as father Dyer, I really liked seeing him back because him and George C. Scott just have a really awesome chemistry. It's really terrifying when you watch them just kind of have like witty back and forth, uh, you know, for, for large parts of the film, uh, where they're just, you know, they're, they're keeping each other company and trying not to go insane. And, you know, that is just completely brought to the test. And yeah, the description of father Dyer's death that Brad Dourif gives when he's just like, yeah, have you ever drained someone's blood? And he's he's just like, he's like, you gotta put the catheter in and you have to put them upside down and you got to squeeze them like a like, bottle of ketchup. Otherwise basically. <laughs> you'll drop. You don't want to spill any blood. Like it's just like how enthusiastic and detailed he is about the procedure is just, yeah, it's very unsettling. Yeah. So I, so I think that the way that this goes from the, the surreal, like literal psychodrama of exorcist two to this, which is very grounded in the experience of hell on earth and just the bleak, tangible realities that we cope with and somehow continue to to believe to fight despite everything that your eyes and your body is telling you to basically give up and the idea of faith as like a a coping mechanism or a mean of of action or conviction and the way that he just returns to those similar themes of the first first exorcist and just somehow makes it more horrible and more bleak and just even more despairing is I think really impressive. And the fact that large portions of this film are just a literal dialectic with evil. Yeah. I think it's really impressive that somehow that is a very convincing uh, horror film. There's so many different ways that, uh, as Will mentioned, like this could be comic or cheesy um, that it it somehow isn't. Um, So I got to give it solid, solid credit. Yeah. uh, I'd also give it the the four out of five, but I, I really did love this film. I could, I could see this getting the upgrade too. Uh, I'm, incredibly impressed by blatty just because i know he has like very few films i know he has the the ninth configuration but it seems like that might be the only other really big one that that we know of i'm not 100 percent sure on that but just to, to he has such an eye and i was very surprised you know coming from he's he's a novelist so you'd think that 
most of it would be, and it, and it is a lot of conversations, but I, th- I thought it would be more, a little bit more bland in the way that he presents those conversations. There's but, a, there's a lot of moody images and also a lot of really effective, like hard cuts and match cuts and stuff like that. Yeah. Like taking us from, from different scenes. One I actually wanted to mention was, uh, when, when he's first told by Dr. Temple that the patient, patient X, who is the, the unnamed patient who we find out later is Brad Dourif. Um, it claims to be the Gemini killer. There's an amazing cut in this film where he's like, and he claims to be the Gemini killer. And yeah. it somehow cuts, to um, George C. Scott already being out of his chair and like hitting the wall in disbelief and shock. Um, And, but the cut, the cut like absolutely makes no continuity sense. Like he's previously sitting in a chair on like the other side of the room. (laughs) So, so it's really cool to see a novelist, someone who, you know, typically writers turn directors think very literally um, to see someone do like what is, you know, not a continuity based cut there and to get the effect of George C. Scott, like feeling strange and feeling like something is unnatural and amiss and you get a very unnatural cut to exemplify that. Yeah. Um, or so- anyway, continue. Or something like, uh, like what I was saying at the beginning where, you know, it's expressing that the, the priest is still thinking about father Cora's death. And, and so he has, uh, that, that hard cut to, to just him throwing himself out the window and falling down the stairs in the POV. So you get this, there's just a sense that they're always thinking about the past trauma that, that has happened to them. Uh, it's, it's just great. And then uh, George C. Scott, his, his just outbursts of like people that are being com- incompetent around him, or at least that's how he views it, is fantastic because he plays him so exhausted the entire time, but he always has enough energy to yell at somebody. And I, and I love that. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and I love the way that they have, like there's one great little close-up camera angle of him in the car where he just starts yelling at a guy that's driving him around chasing the... I, I can't remember who he's chasing exactly at the time, but he's chasing somebody. And there's this funny little close-up of him just like, go around, you son of a bitch! And just him just getting so angry at people is, is constantly entertaining. Uh, and then uh, and then Brad Dourif, who is just, uh, what a powerhouse villain performance. It's one of my favorites. I could watch his monologues over and over and over again. Uh, and, and honestly, anyone else, I feel like it would have been silly because some of the things that he's saying are very over the top, very, uh, very just crazy. And, and if, if it wasn't for Brad's skills, what, he, he's so good at, at being subtle, holding back until he needs to, and then having the crescendos at the proper times, because I feel like someone else would just kind of go for it throughout, but he just has such a dynamic way of, of, uh, of, of expressing that character. So it was, it was yeah. great. It was fantastic. Uh, yeah. Uh, four out of five for now. We'll see if it gets. Yeah. And, and, and some incredible line deliveries from him. I, I love the one too, which also speaks to this being a little bit about sort of like evil, this sort of like spiritual conception of evil, but in the material world, which is like what a lot of these characters are wrestling with. But Brad Dourif says in this artificial box, you call a world we cannot touch except through bodies yeah. operating through neurological systems. And like just the way that he like emphasizes yeah, it's like galaxy words. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it's, it's pretty incredible. I was really, really impressed with him. Also really liked the ending, which is just, uh, the, the last shot of, of George and, uh, I, I believe the other priest, uh, or, or who, who's the other guy beside him? Was it the other priest that's looking over father, Akura's, yeah, uh, I think it's Father Morning with him. Okay, and I just like that shot because it's just one shot of someone 
them saying like at least he's at peace now you know he can rest easy go to heaven whatever the hell is going on in this world he can hang out with uh, patrick ewing yeah exactly yeah Yeah. go hang out with fabio you know what's what what's really funny is that in the director's cut that scene doesn't exist so oh, really? he, he, he Blatty just wanted to make it as terrible as possible. And he I just leaves that. you with George C. C. Scott um, shooting Brad Dourif in the head. And it's basically a cut to the sun and cut to black. <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty <laughs> awesome. I, I mean, I do like like bleak endings like that as well. But I don't know. After seeing all this trauma, I did enjoy being able to say, okay, you know, his soul can, can rest easy in I mean, this world. It was nice. <laughs> I, I, I definitely felt good knowing that uh, Father Karras has been freed from this material world. <laughs> yes, exactly. He's been through a lot, you know. <laughs> a lot. He, he, had, he, he experienced so much pain in that first movie. Yeah. And then he spent 15 years sharing a body with Brad Dourif while his mind was being, right. you know, uh, destroyed. And then he came back, and he came back just to basically watch his body used as a vessel to uh, kill a bunch of people. Yeah, I uh, mean, really, really brutally if and terribly. And expresses desperation, like just looking at George C. Scott and going, "Kill me, fucking do it, please." That I don't know what else would. So, yeah, it, uh, it was relieving to see him just kind of rest easy, I guess. Uh, even though I do like the idea of a bleak ending as well, or a bleaker ending. I mean, it's not like this thing is happy. <laughs> So, yeah, no, great, for great sure. Movie. But, uh, for you, Will. This is a this is a five out of five for me. This is a five bagger. Oh, yes. uh, this is a five bagger for me. Like uh, Exorcist Three is everything a horror movie should be, in my opinion. It is the almost the pure pure product and vision of like a single individual fevered mind. It's philosophical. It's atmospheric, uh, but also truly delivers on some amazingly gruesome atrocities. Uh, and, and is anchored by two just absolutely fucking killer performances in Brad Dourif and George C. Scott. Five out of five for me. This is like one, one of my favorite horror movies of all time, if not the number one. And I, I also like that when you, what you mentioned too is the fact that, that Blatty is like a devout uh, Catholic. So really it feels authentic in that way. And I don't think you'd get the same kind of story from somebody that didn't wholly believe in this kind of stuff. So... That was cool too. That's that's honestly the reason that it's fucking scary. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because <laughs> he's like, this is this is happening, you know. Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I think that that will uh, wrap it up for uh, this week's episode. That was uh, Psycho Two from nineteen eighty three and Exorcist Three from nineteen ninety. Thanks so much, Will, for for joining us and, yes, and you, coming man. on our our first episode of what is going to be a very intense Spooktober here on the show. We know that we wanted to have you on to do these ones, and you didn't disappoint. No, these now, were great. Thank you very this much. This is the part of the show, Will, <laughs> where we usually have you uh, do some plugs. If you got anything to plug, what's going yeah. on in the Chapo world? Uh, Chapo continues to go strong. We continue to work our malevolent. World, evil will through the world, um, <laughs> but uh, but if, uh, if if I have the opportunity to plug something, I would plug. Uh, I would love your listeners to uh, to follow me on Letterboxd, as Josh mentioned. This is my I'm making a sort of a, sure. staking out a, a new sort of homestead on a different social media site, and I'm very much enjoying uh, logging logging those movies. And I, I hope it's you addicting, enjoy. man. I will hope you will enjoy some of my some of my thoughts on uh, the movies I've been watching recently. So get at me. I'm Cody Dad 420 on Letterboxd or just search Will Meneker. You'll find me. I'm there. Check check it out. 
I, yeah, I was very stoked to see that you were a big fan of Brian De Palma's Mission to Mars, probably one of his most underrated films. I still got very underrated. Very underrated. I was surprised. I mean, when I first saw it, I didn't like it, but then watching it again, I was like, damn, this is really good. Yeah, and the and the uh, Ennio Morricone score on that one just slaps. It's so good. Oh, he's amazing. He's so good. Yeah, uh, for uh, for our listeners, we are going to be back in one week's time where we are going to be doing uh, continuing Spooktober and we're going to be doing a bonus episode for you guys. Usually one episode every year is reserved for Italian horror because no one yeah. does it quite like the Italians do it. So we are going to be talking about uh, Lucio Fulci's Zombie Flesh Eaters. Uh, which was uh, marketed in Italy as Zombie 2. So it's Lucio <laughs> Fulci doing what was a cynical, greenlit, uh, fake sequel to Dawn of the Dead. Uh, and so that's going to be as graphic as you can expect from Fulci. We've only talked of about course. Fulci once, but we did. But uh, we he did has do some three of the movies, most I think, intense. Though. Yeah, he has some of the most intense uh, gore that you will see in any other filmmaker. The dude yeah. was a doctor turned painter turned filmmaker <laughs> and he he views gore makeup as basically like a painting and he doesn't believe in it having to be realistic instead just it should gush blood everywhere just disgusting so we're going to be talking Love about it. that man making a zombie film and then we're going to be talking about um uh michael sorve's cemetery man uh <laughs> which is what a, a movie c- i can't even describe it it's uh, so crazy Another weird it, one. It's which absolutely I love. insane, and it's basically just about a very handsome Italian man uh, who oversees a cemetery during uh, a zombie rise. But he's very casual about it. He basically just like shoots shoots various zombies that come onto his property like they're nothing. But also maybe he falls in love with a woman who turns into a zombie, and necrophilia and romance <laughs> starts. So that's that movie, and we'll be talking about that alongside Fulci's movie next week. Uh, again, patreoncom slash podcast for anyone who wants that episode. But then in two weeks' time, we are going to be back with a special guest, and we are going to be talking about some some more Catholic horror. Oh, beautiful! Alice, sweet Alice, um, which is a which is a pretty gonzo sort of like Catholic horror film done as a giallo film. And then we're going to be talking about Basket Case, Ooh. which I have not seen, but apparently the premise is that a man is carrying his Siamese twin brother around in a basket, and he's very angry at about the people who separated them at birth, and he's getting some revenge for that. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> I have not watch listed, but I didn't even know what it was about. I just love the poster. Yeah, so we have a lot of spooky stuff coming up uh, over the next month. Thanks so much, guys, for listening. Uh, but I think that's going to wrap it up for everything this week, so keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy.